0: We look at history, and very analogous to history and somewhat going hand-in-hand is culture. There are a lot of issues of culture in most passages of the Bible that are different from the culture in which we live in. And sometimes those cultural issues and elements have an impact on understanding the passage. There are a lot of things that are so different that if you don't have an understanding of them, you may not have an understanding of given particular passages. And you might just remind yourself, I won't go into all the areas of culture, but there are all those areas we said that we lumped Geography and uh, cultural elements, we talked about uh, the sociological things, what things did people wear, what were their houses like, how did they live, all those sociological issues. We mentioned religion is usually a cultural thing, and it differs from time period to time period. The Egyptian culture, for example, in the time of Moses, is different from the Mediterranean Greco-Roman culture of the first century. Radically different cultures, and particularly in terms of religion. So we're dealing with all of these issues. Economy, that's part of the culture. They use different currency, obviously. Put different values on different things monetarily. Agriculture, which is a big element. So all these issues, these are the areas that you need to look into sometimes to understand a passage. Even legal, political. We gave you a long list when we were talking about culture, when we were looking at hermeneutical principles. Architecture, how they come into play. What's the culture behind uh, the readers and the, the author? If you're dealing with the book of Genesis and you're dealing with the patriarchs, that's a patriarchal culture. If you're talking about the time before the flood, that's an entirely different culture. There's some elements there that are seem to be radically different than the cultures after the Genesis flood. If you're dealing with the Mosaic period, you may probably be dealing with an Egyptian culture. Remember, we've mentioned some of these when we have talking about general hermeneutics. If you're talking about the time of David, that culture was different from the Mosaic culture. And the later history of Israel is different from the earlier history. In some cases, they're in Babylon. They're in a Babylonian culture. In the New Testament, you have the culture of the Greeks. You have the culture of the Romans. And sometimes they overlap. Sometimes they mix. So it's good to understand what's going on with uh, the different peoples that are being either addressed to or written to by different authors. Photo, background photo for this slide, that's Philippi. This is the Roman Forum. Almost the exact dimensions of a football field. But obviously, it's not a football field. (laughs) This was the heart of any Roman city of the first century. Most cities had a forum. Here in New Mexico, what do we have that would correspond to a forum of the first century? What do we have in Old Town? Or what do all the communities in New Mexico have? They have a what? What do we call it? Plaza. Yeah. Kind of the heart of the city, the plaza. That's You have all the shops around it. You might even have a government building on a corner. You have the church, like Old Town here. This would be analogous. The forum in the cities in the first century would be analogous to that kind of a situation. So when you think of a Roman forum, or they talk about a gate, there's usually a gate associated to the entrance there in the first century. Think in terms of what we would correspond in our culture something like a plaza in older days. There'd be shops, government buildings, there'd be temples, there'd be all kinds of cultural issues there. So those are the types of things that we're talking about when we talk about culture. And we're trying to see what is going on in terms of the people that are part of the, either the narrative or what's being described, if it's epistolary, that touch on some of these These areas. Even Ephesians that speaks of Paul a prisoner. What were the prisons like? Those kinds of things. So those are the areas that you want to consider. Military has a big play. The particulars, that will vary from passage to passage and it may be radically different even in the same book. Any particular issues that come up, so every particular issue will be peculiar to every individual passage. And if you don't quite understand what the cultural elements involved there, those are the areas that you need to pursue further and in some cases look up in the appropriate reference works. If you're in the gospels, we look at crucifixion and in a lot of, a lot of ways we have kind of sanitized it, I guess is a good word to describe the way we view the crucifixion. And if we've done that in our thinking or we've uh, kind of spiritualized it, it'd be a good thing to go back and review or look up what was involved in a Roman crucifixion. And uh, very graphic, very uh, gruesome, but there's a lot of other things. Uh, Who are the Pharisees? What are they all about? What's the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee? Uh, these would be cultural slash historical issues. There's a mention of Herodians. Who are they in the Gospels? Who are, who are the Herodians? And could a Sadducee also be a Herodian or a Pharisee also be a Herodian? Or is there some overlap there? Or Who are they? What was the Jewish legal system? Why did they have to go to Rome? or the Roman Empire, to get Jesus crucified? Why couldn't they just do it themselves? What was going on there? Sanhedrin. Who's the Sanhedrin? That's mentioned. Who are the Samaritans in uh, John chapter 4? Jesus deals with the woman of Samaria. What's the historical background there? What was the culture there? What, What did they believe? In fact, that whole interchange is a cultural interchange between not only a man and a woman, but a man and a Samaritan woman. And not only... Were there cultural differences there? But part of that culture of difference was a difference of worship and approach to God. There were two different systems there. So it's helpful to understand that in order to understand this interplay between Jesus and this woman. Highly unusual for any man to get into that kind of a discussion with a woman that he did not know. And even more... Unusual for a Jewish man to be involved with a Samaritan, not to speak of a Samaritan woman. Why were they even in that location? There are different routes that they could have taken to get from uh, point A to point B in uh, Israel. Why did they go through that particular location? There's a lot of cultural issues involved in in that. So those are some of the particulars to to look into, depending on the passage. There's the possibility of abuse. In fact, hermeneutically, this is one of the main areas of abuse today in interpretation is abusing the cultural principle that we talked about in hermeneutics. So you'll have to deal with some of these issues. Let me give you an example of the abuse in our culture. There are a lot of passages in the New Testament that teach relationships between husbands and wives that include roles that go against the culture in which we live in. And there have arisen several theologians that have reinterpreted many of those passages, primarily feminists, feminist background interpreters, that wave It's kind of subsided, but about 30 years ago, there was just all these books that were coming out that were basically framed from a feminist perspective, taking Ephesians 5 and some of those passages, reinterpreting. And the abuse was, is they took the cultural principle and said, well, all of those things were cultural. In other words, those roles themselves were not necessarily teaching on roles that go on in regardless of the period of time. So those roles were peculiar to the first century culture and were applicable then. We live in a more enlightened, a different culture, a different time, so they're not applicable today. So these issues of culture come into play as to how do you actually apply many of those passages. And this is just an example. So, a reinterpreting of these passages, which basically, in some cases, makes the passages say the very opposite of what they actually say. Another thing that's going on today is there's a reinterpreting of passages relating to the whole homosexual issue. Justifying from scripture that practice, if you will, that whole gay, lesbian environment. And again, the argument is the the culture today is different than it was in other times, and some of those passages that prohibit these things, those are peculiar to that particular culture. So that's how this can be abused, this whole area. So we need to make clear. And there certainly are limitations. I think I told you a little bit about this in terms of coming up with What things are transferable from one culture to another? Which things are peculiar, genuinely peculiar to a particular culture? And there are at least four possibilities that Zuck provides in his explanation of culture and its impact. And I'll refer you mainly to that list. Uh, That's probably the best explanation that i found in any of the the hermeneutical texts. And in that, he says that there are some situations, some commands or principles that are repeatable and they're continuous. They're not revoked, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And thus they're applicable pretty much as stated in those even Old Testament passages. And these primarily pertain to Universal moral principles, thou shall not steal, for example. In other words, the Ten Commandments, apart from the uh, Sabbath observance, all nine of those are transferable to any period of time, even pre-Mosaic. But, secondly, there are some situations or commands or principles that pertain to an individual, specific, non-repeatable circumstance things peculiar to that historical situation. Most of those are non-moral, non-theological. They're commands for people to do certain things, but they're not of the same level that that I gave you of that first. They're not transferable. Abraham commanded to sacrifice his son, Isaac, Well, that's a command that was unique to that particular situation. No one else ever, anywhere else in Scripture, received that same command. That's an example. Now, there's a principle that might be transferable, but in terms of the literal expression of that principle, in terms of Isaac, that is a unique situation. You might draw from these principles that are applicable today. So the cultural limitations, you need to be aware of some of them. Number three, in Zook, some situations or commands pertain to cultural setting that are only partially similar to ours. Greet one another with a holy kiss. In our culture, that's probably inappropriate male and female in the church, right? But the principle could be applied in a number of ways. A hug, I think, is appropriate in most circles, or a handshake or uh, some kind words might be applicable to do something similar. So we need to sort some of that out, and that's part of the application. Only partial, partially transferable. And there are some situation commands that pertain to cultural settings that have no similarities, but in which principles are transferable. Somewhat mentioned that already. So these are part of the exegetical decisions that you'll need to make in the exegetical process. You may have observed these areas, these things, these particulars in, in uh in the observational stage, but now you're making decisions on them. And now you're moving from uh, not only the observational stage, but now you're making determinations concerning the meaning, and then the next step will be the application, which we'll talk about next. Not today, but next in terms of after we complete the interpretation phase. So that's culture. And the details of the passage will help us in making these decisions. We've looked at the text, we've looked at word studies, we've considered structural analysis, we've briefly looked at history and culture, and there's a whole host of other interpretive things that you want to consider. And the bottom line is basically whatever is required in order to understand any given passage. So what other issues that arise that may come up uh, you go back to your observational stage and I gave you all kinds of other things. I gave you purpose. In other words, come to determination concerning why did the author include this word or why did he include this sentence? How does this sentence contribute to the whole? It's kind of quasi-structural, but it also gets involved with things like purpose, issues of atmosphere, all of those other things that we talked about. So it, it include other things other conclusions and remember you're coming to conclusions now they can be grammatical we've talked somewhat about that just in structural analysis but grammatical could include things like figures of speech another thing you want to do is look at look at take a close look at the metaphorical language that might be used in a passage one of the uh, assignments got you into uh, Ephesians chapter 5, if you remember. And in Ephesians chapter 5, even though this is epistolary literature, Paul is using some images there, or he's using metaphorical languages in that passage. He's contrasting darkness and light in that particular Ephesians 5 passage. So, you're going to have to think in terms of What are the images that he's creating using light and darkness? What are the contrasts that he's making? What are the spiritual points he's trying to convey by utilizing these devices, metaphorical devices? Now, the uh, standard approach to any passage is you take it literally first, unless there's anything in the passage that uh, leads you to take it otherwise. If there's something in the passage that leads you to conclude that uh, perhaps there is maybe a figure of speech being used or a literary device, metaphorical device, that's after you've taken it literally first. If there's nothing that suggests anything other than literal, then you take it literally. Remember the well-known maxim: if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. And you, the good sense starts with literal sense. So you have to find evidence in the text that the author is intending metaphorical language. Similes are easy to identify. Something is like something else. Symbols very often have little clues in the context that tell you that uh, the author is using a symbol in, in Revelation. Jesus says, as for the mystery of the seven candlesticks, the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. Not only does he give you the clues that he's using a symbol there, but he also even interprets it. When he says the mystery of, what he's saying is what I'm saying about this candlestick has some elements that are not clear-cut. And then he interprets it and from the interpretation, you see very clearly the description of the candlesticks represent the seven churches. Very clear cut in the passage. Look for those kinds of things, for evidence in the text of non-literal usage. If the literal text, if the literal understanding is impossible, then there's the possibility of a figure of speech being used. And I've already mentioned when we were talking about uh, figurative language, in fact, I gave you a lot of background there and gave you a list of all of the examples, not all of them, but several examples of different types of metaphorical language. You interpret them according to their conventions. That's the principle. So if it's a simile, obviously it's a comparison of things. Something is like something else. If it's a symbol, one thing replaces another. And again, there's imagery there. The image is to convey something that is maybe not as easily seen. So you determine what the figure of speech is that it's involved, and then you interpret according to that convention. If it's a symbol, remember you have the object, that's a symbol. And then you have the referent, what the symbol refers to. And thirdly, you have the meaning. Why is this symbol utilized? What is the meaning of this connection that is being made there? We're not at liberty to give them the meaning that we desire, just like we are not at liberty to give any passage meaning that we desire. Look for the major point of resemblance between the two things that are being compared. Cross-referencing, this is sometimes helpful, In trying to understand the passage before you, you might notice or you might begin to think in terms of, does this phrase occur or is there a cross-reference that I can look up to deal with this little phrase or this idea or this concept? You would put that under grammatical issues, cross-referencing. There are three types of cross-referencing. Number one, there are what are described as verbal cross-references. And these would be defined as wording in one passage is similar or identical to the wording in another passage. Where the content or the idea is the same. In other words, the author's dealing with the same idea. An example of this would be In Colossians, Paul has a section of family relationships that would be a cross-reference in studying the family relationships passage in Ephesians chapter 5, where he deals with the same ideas, same issues. The wording might be slightly different, but the ideas are the same. They're written to different audiences. So you have parallel passages in Ephesians and Colossians, Parts of Romans that deal primarily with justification by faith, you find parallel passages in Galatians. So it'd be helpful to look at both of those contexts. Second Peter chapter 2 deals with apostates. So does the whole book, one chapter of Jude. The one chapter of Jude. So that would be useful in cross-referencing. In terms of prophecy, a lot of phrases, a lot of ideas come right out of the book of Daniel. So Daniel would be a good cross-reference for the study in the book of Revelation, and or vice versa. There's also, secondly, what would be called conceptual cross-references. Number one is verbal cross-references, where the wording is the same or similar. Number two, conceptual cross-referencing. You have passages with identical concepts or ideas. The Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25, you have the same discourse in Luke 21 and Mark 13. The material is not as extensive as it is in Matthew, so some passages are left out. But in general, the idea of the end of the age is the same in both, and the period that Jesus is describing is identical. So that would be a conceptual cross-reference. The idea of resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, that's your central passage on resurrection, but also Revelation 20 deals with resurrection. Not as in detail, but in some measure. Cross-references. Number one, you have verbal cross-references. Number two, conceptual cross-referencing. Number three, parallel cross-references. Parallel cross-references. Here you have books that describe the same events or same topics. Books that describe the same events or same topics. An example of a parallel cross-reference would be in the Gospels, particularly the synoptic Gospels, But sometimes we have the same incident, not only in the synoptics, but sometimes in all four Gospels. Those would be parallel cross-references. So if you're studying one of the incidents in the life of Christ, you might see if the synoptics, all three, include the same event, or even all four, or maybe one, or two may have the same event. And it'd be good to consult that other event. Information may be added to your exegesis. Now be careful with this this kind of cross-referencing because it appears in some cases events may have taken place on two different occasions. For example, the cleansing of the temple. There seems to be one at the beginning of Christ's ministry. I think that one is recorded in the synoptics. I think the one recorded in the Gospel of John is at the end of his... or do I have it mixed up? Anyway, the point being... Is there two separate occasions, two different occasions? And that's true of a couple of other events as well. But the majority of the events that you find in one synoptic, you can find a parallel in the other two synoptics. A good one in the Old Testament is there's a lot of parallels between 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. And 1st and 2nd Chronicles. In other words, the four books, Samuel, the 2 of Samuel, and the 2 of Kings, there's parallel treatments of similar incidents and similar kings, not all of them, also in the, the two books of the Chronicles. Those would be uh, parallel cross-references. So you have verbal cross-referencing, you have conceptual cross-referencing, and thirdly, you have parallel cross-referencing and these relate to grammatical issues primarily. Theological issues or problems that you may need to solve or or deal with. Every passage will touch on some areas of theology, and in some cases you might find issues that seem to be in conflict with other passages that deal with the same theology. You'll have to solve those theological problems. Come to some conclusions. Again, Sunday, I was talking about the uh, immutability of God, and I was mentioning that there seems to be two sets of passages. There seem to be some passages that clearly say, for example, the Malachi passage, uh, Malachi three six, I believe, where God is speaking. He says, I do not change my mind. And there's other passages that kind of support the idea that God does not change. He's immutable. And yet, you have... The passage in, like Exodus, what was it, 32.12, if I remember right in my mind, where it says God changed his mind. Well, (laughs) what do you do with those two passages? You have a theological issue here. Is God really immutable or is he not? How do you bring harmony between the two passages? We have a high view of Scripture. We believe in their inspiration and inerrancy. We know that uh, the two passages could not be contradictory. So there has to be a resolution there that uh, the two have to fit together somehow. So we spent some time trying to resolve that. Or you might come up with some theological conclusions that go against the denomination that you are a member of. Well, maybe your denomination is not right. So you have to kind of wrestle with some of those issues. Or your upbringing or whatever... Situation, you might find things that are not exactly the way or that your upbringing taught you. So you have to deal with those issues. Things that seem to conflict with other passages, those are things that you need to take into account. And maybe your exegesis of this passage may have some flaws in it such that the conclusion that you're coming to that is in conflict with another passage that may be clear, maybe you need to revise your exegetical conclusions concerning those theological issues. You're always dealing with these structural issues. We spend a lot of time dealing with those both within a sentence, but also on the broader scale. At this stage, you want to finalize your decisions so that you are coming up with your final exegetical outline, your final structural decisions, whether at the lower grammatical level in terms of prepositional phrases or all the way to divisions. At this point, you want to make sure you are consistent with the genre and your conclusions are consistent with the genre. I'll remind you of the example that I gave concerning the purpose of passages, and remember we talked about Acts is not predominantly doctrinal. So if you're dealing with Acts, you want to make sure that you are dealing more on a historical level, and if it touches on theological or doctrinal issues, you need to make sure that uh, you're not basing that theology or doctrine simply on the book of Acts. It has to be based elsewhere, maybe illustrated in the book of Acts. So issues of genre. Purpose, mention mentioned that as well. So you come into conclusions relating to purpose. And another thing you might do is just read other translations. You might give another slant and, and give you an insight. If you're doing your work in the New American Standard, uh, now's the time to read NIV. And even it's even helpful to read a paraphrase, read Good News or Phillips Translation. There's also some books that have several translations all in one book. And you might, if you have one of them, all you have to do is just open to the passage you're dealing with and just see how all of the other translations translate that passage. And by this stage, you're in a good place to begin to say, oh, I see, this guy took this arrangement in this way or this issue in this way and and the translators of this one took it in a different way. Or this grammatical issue, they solved it in this way and this one dealt with it in this way. And it might just stick out because you already have a lot of uh, work that you've already done. Okay, so we're coming... Close to the end of our interpretive process. Remember, in exegesis, we want to have a verification stage. So let's talk about verification. And in case you have forgotten, let me remind you, this is part of the scientific method, which comes out of the exegetical process. And the analogy that I used between science and exegesis We've talked about the observational stage in science. You observe phenomenon in nature, in the creation. We've talked a lot about observation of the biblical text. That's the analogy in exegesis. We just completed, or we're getting close to completing, generalization. We formed hypotheses in science. In exegesis, we began with initial interpretation We've refined it, and we're getting close to the end of the process. We've come to some conclusions that we have made, but now we want to test it. We want to verify it. And in science, you come up with a test that tests your hypotheses. In exegesis, you substantiate the work that you've done. And we've talked about the rest of the process here, utilization, engineering, analogous application, construction, and exposition. Here's where commentaries come into place. Place of commentaries. I've been saying all along that you should put off the use of commentaries till later in the exegetical process. Ideally, it would be after you have come to all of your conclusions. Now, on a practical level, if you're dealing with one issue, there's nothing wrong with going to the commentary and see what the commentary says on that particular issue, but wrestle with it for a while. And particularly those issues of history and culture that we don't have a background where we need a little bit input there. So you might utilize commentaries earlier than at the very end here, as long as you're not short-circuiting the whole process. But ideally, the place of commentaries is after you've done a significant amount of work on your own and you've come to some decisions on your own and you have some reasons for basing those decisions. Now you go see, to get verification, to get somewhat of a test to make sure that you're not totally out to lunch. And the unfortunate thing is... Most believers, they'll open up the Bible before they even read the text, they'll go to a commentary. And I've been saying all along, if you do that, basically your whole objectivity has been skewed in the direction of the conclusions of the commentary. So everything that you see in the text now is colored by what the commentary has already put forward. And it's unfortunate that a lot of pastors overly depend on commentaries. We talked about that earlier. And they don't go through the process. Well, what do they do? What do commentaries do? Well, they'll substantiate the truth of the passage. Now, it doesn't mean that the commentary is right, but in general, if people have gone to the extent of publishing, they've had editors and they've They've probably had reviewers and people that have gone over their exegesis and helped them to make sure that everything is somewhat in order. So, in general, they are useful for substantiating the truth of any given passage. And this is a source outside of ourselves, so oftentimes the commentators are more often than not on the right track. Secondly, they're useful for doing the very thing that we're talking about, for verification, verifying your personal findings. You made all the observations. You did the word studies. You came to some good conclusions here. You have some good reasons for your conclusions. And now it's verified by this commentary. The commentary says the same thing that you come up to. So it's good for verification. But uh oh I, I think I, I missed this part po- or I uh I was on the wrong track on that one. And so it's good thirdly for correction. Correcting mistakes that we inevitably will make. And as you get better at it, hopefully you have more experiences of verification and fewer and fewer of correction. And as you become more and more skilled. In the exegetical process, you'll have the experience of verification more often than correction. And since we have limited time and limited resources and limited background, number four is it serves the purpose of illumination. And what we mean by that, it gives us insights. Oh, I didn't even see that at all. So it'll help you to find insights that you and I missed. So it'll serve a corrective purpose, it'll serve a verification purpose, but it'll also add, and in some cases it might send you all the way back to the drawing board and say, oh, I need to start over on this thing, (laughs) or at least in this sentence. So it'll open up whole areas that, oh, I didn't even think about possibly even going in that direction, or thinking along those lines. And if somebody's gone to the, the extent of publishing, then they've probably spent several more hours than we have been able to spend in the passage that we're looking at. In some commentaries, one that I'm thinking of, for example, uh, Hohner, uh Harold Honor, who's quite a scholar. In fact, I depend on him on a lot of chronological stuff. Greek scholar, professor at Dallas Seminary. His life work is embodied in his commentary in Ephesians. So he almost spent a lifetime putting that together, and it's tremendous commentary. So you would expect that he would come up with things in the passage that are legitimate that we would miss. So that's the value of commentaries. He's going to that quickly, because you have people with 40 years of experience who are enlightened by the Holy Spirit, who have done the work and they're ready to give you the... Not every commentary is that thorough. Not every commentary is that accurate. Not every commentary commentary comes from the same theological perspective that you might be coming from. Kind of a glaring example of that is I've exegeted the book of Revelation and I've taught it for many years. The first few times that I've gone through the book of Revelation... I've done my own work and consulted just a few commentaries, and as I've gone back to it and taught it more, I've expanded the commentaries. The last time I exegeted through the book and taught through the book, I deliberately chose commentaries that came from a totally different theological perspective to see how do they come up with amillennialism from the book of Revelation, or how do they come up with these other radically different interpretations of the book. You may have a commentary that is probably pretty good, but he may not totally agree with where you're coming from theologically, and you need to sort those out. And if you don't have a basis of you doing some work ahead of time, now you can come to the point here where, okay, I disagree with what he's saying, or, or over here, but I have more confidence in the work that I've done. If you go to this process... It won't be unusual that you will find some commentaries that you will have more confidence. I experience that all the time. And you might consult another commentary that is closer to your theological persuasion or your where you're coming from, and his conclusions may be different. And all generally, if I'm exegeting, I think I'm consulting five commentaries through my study of the book of Hebrews right now. If I do it again, sometime I'll add some more. So, In the book of Hebrews, there are two kind of radically different approaches to the the whole book. And I've got commentaries on both sides. So they'll disagree. And I will come up with reasons why I will disagree with one set of those commentaries. And usually it is verified by the other set that I'm dealing with. But if you go to the commentary first, then whatever perspective, whatever conclusions that commentator came to, I'm colored in that direction already. I'm biased in that direction. And I'm going to see the passage from that narrow perspective. And I'm not going to be able to see perhaps a different understanding that may be the correct one. So that's the place of commentaries. I think they are very useful when properly used. And I think this is the stage at which they best are utilized. So that's verification. And generally, commentaries are your main source in exegetical work. There's different kinds of commentaries. Keep that in mind. There are some commentaries that, in fact, probably the majority of them are devotional. Those are not the type of commentaries that are useful in the work that we are doing here. Devotional commentaries are most useful At the next stage that we're talking about, which we'll get into next week, that's application. We'll talk about application next week. Because devotional commentaries stress basically the applicational aspect of a passage. For the exegetical part, for the interpretive stage, you want to consult a good exegetical commentary which deals with all of these same issues, which will deal with issues of word studies, analyzing structure, gives you background, gives you history, gives you culture, will give you the cross-referencing of other passages. It'll do all the things that we are doing in the interpretive stage. So you want to look for a commentary that is more exegetical, or sometimes they're called expositional And they choose the word exposition because they're giving the product of their exegesis, but in in the process they're giving you the argumentation and the reasoning for the conclusions they come to. There are some commentaries that are more theologically inclined or in emphasis as well. Those are not as useful as strictly exegetical or expositional commentaries. Commentaries that work... Sentence by sentence, explaining the text, basically. So we're coming to the last stages of the interpretive process. Now we're bringing it all together. This is the stage of synthesizing or summarizing, bringing things to conclusion. You've done a lot of work, and you've got all these little pieces of paper. You've got your diagram there. You've You got your notes that you took on that cultural issue out of that Bible encyclopedia. You've jotted down some of your observations on another sheet. You you got all of these pieces of paper scattered all over your desk. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And your memory of all of the work that you've done will serve you for tomorrow morning. Yeah, okay. But you put all this work, you don't want to do it all over again. So you want some way of not only putting it together for tomorrow, but you want some way to put it together so that you have your work in some form preserved for you so that five years from now when you're teaching the same book to a different class or a different age group or whatever, you don't have to go through the whole process all over again. And by the way, when you do word studies... Once you've done a word study on a particular word, you don't have to go back when you encounter that same word in a different context. You don't have to do that word study again. If you have a way of preserving those, either in a separate word study file, you could do that in alphabetic order. In other words, you're putting together your own lexicon. Or what I do is I just keep it in the notes where I did the word study and the passage that I'm expounding and then in my Englishman's, I'll put a little note in that book where to find it. In other words, I'll know where that word study is, and then I do go to my notes and look at Hebrews or First Corinthians or wherever I did it. And then I'm just going to go pull that out. And So once you've done a word study, you don't have to do that word study again. You've got all that work. Unless you did it 15 years ago and you're a little more sophisticated and you want to redo it, but... Once you've done it, you've developed the range of meaning. All you have to do now is go over, okay, this word is used in these five ways. In this different context, I think it's used in this way now. And it's just a review of what you've already done. So, summarization is coming up with a way to gather everything together so that you're ready in the morning to teach or long-term Uh, you're preserving all the work that you've done. So what's involved? Well, you're gathering together your conclusions. And let's talk a little bit about the range of conclusions or what conclusions are all, all about. You want to, and you might want, especially major conclusions, you want to have reasons why you've come to certain conclusions. Maybe there's a particular issue in that passage that uh, you need to resolve, and now you need to have reasons why you've come to conclusion A rather than conclusion B. And you might just write them down, one, two, three, four, five. In other words, because of these five things in the text, I've come to this conclusion. And you could even uh, include some that your commentary adds, you know, you've come up with your four, now the commentary gives you two more. So you get six reasons why that's a good conclusion. Evidence has to be based on the text. Because of the details of what I have in this passage or the context, evidence based on the text. As opposed to this is what my denomination holds to. Thirdly, your conclusions should account for the details of the text. Not half of them, not one of them, but the composite of the details. If it's a good conclusion, it'll account for the details. If it's a flimsy conclusion, then the details sometimes go against the conclusion. Why did I decide? the meaning on this word. Well, you've got a word study and you ought to have a lot of reasons there or a lot of basis for, for that. You ought to be able to show that in similar contexts, that word is used in that same sense or that same meaning. So you have all that data that you've already worked, that you've done in that word study. Now, if you've done uh, diagramming, you have all of that data that's a basis for the conclusion you've come to. And if you can show that you have derived the main idea of this sentence from that diagramming, it comes right out of the diagramming, and you've come to that conclusion, then that is data and information that summarizes that conclusion, or substantiates that conclusion, gives you reasons for it. So these conclusions demonstrate one's interpretation is the most plausible with the available data of the text. In the beginning stages, you are making preliminary conclusions. In this stage, you are basically concluding and finalizing those conclusions. That's synthesis. Fourthly, you ought to be able to, if there's two opposing views, be able to see or list the weaknesses of the other viewpoint, or the other two viewpoints that are differing, the strengths of your conclusions should overwhelmingly overshadow the weaknesses of the others. If you can't do this, then maybe the other perspective is the correct one, and yours is the one that has the weaknesses. And I mentioned this earlier, not all conclusions have the same weight. Not all conclusions have the same weight. And this is true in every given passage. There are some things that will be crystal clear. And you'll have ten reasons why this is the correct interpretation of this particular issue in this particular passage. It's crystal clear. All the commentaries agree. There's no disagreement. So the weight of that conclusion has lots of weight. Sunday morning you can pound the podium. This is what it is. This is what it says. This is what Paul meant. Pound, pound, pound. And there's others that could go either way, like what John was talking about earlier. And sometimes in in teaching, if it's a significant thing in the passage, it could go either way. You might give reasons why you might go in this direction, and then you might give the opposing reasons why you might take uh, another viewpoint. And you can make it clear to the audience, and if you haven't made a decision, you can leave it for them to make. And you can just state that this passage is not clear on this particular issue. So that's the weight. That's what I meant by there are some conclusions in Scripture, some doctrines in Scripture that we will go to the stake for. We will not renounce Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross for us once for all, and that's the only way. We'll go to the cross for that. I think Scripture is pretty clear. But whether the prepositional phrase modifies the subject or maybe an adjective or something else in there, and it's not real clear, those are not issues to go to the stake for. Probably a striking example, the one that comes to mind immediately is Genesis chapter 6, where it talks about the sons of God intermarrying with the daughters of men. Well, who are the daughters of men and who are the sons of God? There's at least three major viewpoints on that from uh, three differing... Uh, well, not differing camps, uh, all of them conservative, all of them pretty much with the the same scholarly ability in terms of commentators and all equally plausible. So in those uh, instances, we probably just don't have enough data to, to be conclusive. So you, you don't want to be dogmatic and saying, well, it has to be this. So you need to weigh the conclusions. And in teaching, it's good to be honest and objective in terms of the things that you have confidence you can preach and teach. And other things that you're not, you can make the audience aware of those things. So this comes into play in every passage. Every passage, you'll feel very confident about the major things that you're going to teach. And there may be some other things within the passage that you're not clear on. And it may just take further study. They may be clear, and there may be enough data and detail there. It's just that I haven't looked at it into sufficient detail to go to the stake for. So we're coming to conclusions. And whether they be on terms, or whether they be on structure, or whether they have to do with uh, figures of speed, whatever they may be, We're beginning to come to conclusions, and we need to be able to record them in some way. And in general, my exegetical outline is the bulk of the conclusions I've come to, because I've summarized what that passage is saying. And once I press the print button and I'm getting ready to send it off, that's the highest level of confidence that I have that I understand that passage and I know the structure of it, Those are the conclusions of this passage. This is how this passage is laid out. So, I will have a main idea. In other words, this is the main thing that is going on in this paragraph that I'm teaching tomorrow. And in my exegetical outline, I will have a title at the top of my sheet there. And basically, that title is a summary of the essence or heart or a summary of what that paragraph is saying. And generally I will give an outline of the whole paragraph. I may not finish that paragraph on a given Sunday, but that's usually the, the full paragraph, or if it's a longer one, uh, a portion of it. What is the main idea? What What is the main thing this passage is talking about? And your teaching should somehow communicate What's the essence of this passage? What is it dealing with? What is it talking about? And the rest of your teaching should be, this is how this main idea is worked out. These are the details of the main idea. Remember, the main idea should be a summary of your outline. Your outline should be an expansion of the main idea of that paragraph. These go hand in hand. If the outline is radically different from the main idea, then you've missed either the main idea or you've missed the outline. So the outline is an expansion or the details of the main idea. Conversely, the main idea is a condensation or a summary of the outline. At this stage of summarization, we're talking about the entire paragraph or whatever portion of scripture that you are expounding upon in that teaching format, whatever it may be. And any particulars that relate to the main idea, you can, the particulars are any particular notes that you have taken. Maybe you did a historical study on Pharisees or whatever, and you've got Maybe a page of notes, you might either reference them, and what I generally do is in my outline, not that I pass out, but this is my personal outline, I'll have, I'll have the exegetical outline. And I will intersperse, I'll, I'll, I'll usually put that, my exegetical outline in my personal notes in bold, all bold print, so I can see the outline. And then I might have some other notes. I might have a note one, number one here. I might refer. This is for me to word study. a word study, and I might spell out the word. Or I might refer if I have a separate sheet. Uh, refer to cultural study on da 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 da. Or I might have a quotation, or I might have uh, a note from a commentary. If I have a note from a commentary, oh. Uh, this is for me. I'll, I'll kind of put the initials here, whatever, where that came out of. That way later on I can go back and check it or whatever. So I'm recording all of the particulars, and I will just stick them right in my exegetical outline. And basically what you're doing is you're organizing. So you're gathering together, you're gathering your notes together and organizing them in such a way that they're useful Either in the morning, uh, you, you might not memorize every quote that you have, but you know where it's at, and if you're going to read that quote or you want to use it, you have it in your notes and you can read it when you get to that point, or later on you have it recorded and you'll have to go back and try to retrieve the notes. So I've organized my notes in a way that's useful. And that's basically the process. At least the uh, interpretive process Any questions that completes this portion of the interpretive process next week we'll get into the next phase which is application we've looked at observation we spent a lot of time looking at it taking notice with perception We've looked at interpretation, and we've just completed it, and we're seeking the bottom line, the author's willed meaning, everything that we've done in recording these notes and exegetical outline and diagramming, and by the way, I'll have my diagram with the notes there so I can consult all the little details there. So, interpretation, we're seeking the author's willed meaning. Next week we'll focus on application.